Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. I'm thankful to be here with you, and I'm very thankful that I can say for the second year in a row... The Michigan Wolverines have defeated the Ohio State Buckeyes. Oh, it was a long time coming. <laughs> but yesterday, I was a very happy guy, and that happiness will last for a whole year. Sorry, Buckeye fans in the crowd and watching online, but I'm of the other persuasion when it comes to college football. Um, where, do I, where do I begin after that? <laughs> I can't move on. I was thinking, you know, the worship set and some of the things that Kathy shared this morning are all over the sermon notes. Again, this happens so often, and I was thinking, you know, there could be like a New Day Sunday morning game, almost like a bingo or something, where if you can connect the dots from the worship set to the sermon, like shout bingo when you've got it. I shouldn't say that with you guys. <laughs> you will. Just randomly, when you think you've got a bingo, let me know. I'm fine with it. I'm totally good. So um, Kathy did a great job summing up Revival Weekend. Some of the themes last weekend were hope and comfort and unity. There was a real sort of family atmosphere, especially since the snow was so crazy. We kind of felt snowed in once we got here, Um, but the Lord was moving powerfully. It was such a pleasure to have Seth and Sarah Gerber here from New Day, Somerville, South Carolina, formerly at Bethel's uh, Supernatural School of Ministry. And they brought a team of three interns with them who are interns third year in that school. Um, It was awesome. It was a really good time. There was one night where the worship, uh, the songs that we sang and the worship time was just so peaceful. It was like a hush and a calm came over us sort of spiritually. And it was really sweet um, and really great. You could just kind of lay there and be like, kind of like that after Turkey, uh, but like more peaceful and less like knocked out cold kind of thing. Anyways, we better get started. So we're picking back up this week after a break with the Colossians series. This is part three. I do it like this these days. I used to do it like that when I was younger, but the pinky doesn't want to play nice. So three of the series this morning. Uh, If you're going to follow along in your Bible, paper, or on an app, you can get it out now. Turn to chapter one, verse 24. Use the ESV if you want to follow me word for word. That's the translation that I'll use this morning. But I wanted to review just a little bit before we continue forward. We learned that, as the title slide here says, Christ holds it all together. And we mean he holds together this letter, and he holds together all of creation. It's really all about Jesus. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to a church in a city called Colossae in the Roman Empire. He writes from prison. Uh, He didn't plant this church. He hadn't been there, but he's writing to encourage them because he's heard about their faith. Um, And he wants them to be mature in their relationship with God. And he wants to protect them from false teachings. And we talked about how we can't approach letters in the New Testament as a grab bag of one-liners, although it works really good for a popular Instagram account, I've heard. Um, That's not what (laughs) what it's actually built for. Context matters. So we can't just export little statements from a letter like Colossians and then immediately import it into our lives. There's just a little bit of work to do first. 
Um, so we have to understand the situation that Paul's speaking into. Um, what are the things that he says in other letters that he wrote in the New Testament? How do these letters fit into the entire biblical picture of who God is, how he relates to his people? And once you kind of fit it into that broader picture, then you have an understanding to apply it to your life and to this New Day community. So that's why we're just going through the letter line by line, trying to make some of those connections and then apply it to our lives. Um, In chapter one, in previous weeks, we talked about how Paul prayed for the Colossian church. And one of his prayers was that they would have an ever-deepening spiral of knowing God more and then saying yes to God, to apply their knowledge of him, and in through doing that, come to know God more and then apply it and then know God more and then apply it. I'd get dizzy if I'd go for the spiral because it's ever-deepening. It's always going on. That's the process that allows us to grow and mature in our relationship with the Lord. You know him at some level today, don't you? If not, you can get to know him. And then go do something with that. And as you say yes to that, say yes to God, you'll get to know him better. Then in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1, we had this beautiful slide, which I just loved, because it gave a picture of a poem that's in this letter. It has structure and balance and symmetry. And these techniques, poetic techniques that Paul uses, actually highlight for us how Jesus is the cosmic creator God and how he's also God in the flesh, reconciling all things to himself. It was really cool. I'd love to do that again, but we'll have to watch it on YouTube if we want to review that one further. And then in light of the poem, Paul encourages the believers to remain faithful and steadfast, anchored to the hope that they have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's our review. Today we're going to move forward, starting in chapter 1, verse 24, reading the section through chapter 2, verse 5. This is a long section. I'm going to read it all to you. Hopefully I gave you plenty of time to get out your Bible and get there. I'm not going to put it all up on the slides, but let's read it together. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. That was one for your bingo boards. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, there's another one right there. This is a good passage for bingo. You guys aren't, do you have your chips out? Dan does. Okay, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. It's a little longer passage than we typically read all at once on a Sunday morning, but it's a logical unit, and it's sort of marked by rejoicing in the, be- in the beginning and at the end. I think I have that for you. Yeah, chapter 1, verse 24, Paul is talking about rejoicing in his sufferings. Chapter 2, verse 5, he's rejoicing to see the good order and firmness of the Colossians' faith. And so those are kind of like bookends that mark this logical unit within the letter. And so what is Paul doing in this section of the letter? That's an excellent question, Bill. Would you answer it for us? Yes, yes, I will. I have three purposes I want to draw out today that he has in this section. The first is to establish trust as an apostle, that they would trust him as their apostle. Two, reveal the mystery of God, which is Jesus. And three, Jesus holds it all together. You probably saw that one coming. We're going to hit on that all throughout. So establish trust as an apostle. Remember, the Colossians had not met Paul themselves in person. So this section serves the purpose of establishing him, like someone you can trust. So why can you trust Paul? Well, he's a commissioned minister of the true gospel. He's been faithful to the call of apostle, and he's all in and fully invested, as evidenced by his sufferings for um, the good news about Jesus. And then he shows how he's really a pastoral caregiver. He's a protector, wants to protect them against false teachings. He's a cheerleader, encouraging them and cheering them on in their faith. And he's a theological guide for their journey of faith as well. So establishing himself in this way really kind of creates a platform that he's going to use to give apostolic direction for them as individuals and a church throughout the rest of the letter. So that's kind of important, especially when you haven't met somebody. Spend a little more time in the letter introducing yourself. Does anyone still write physical letters to friends or family? A few, yeah. There you go. It's one of those things that'll come back around, right? You get sick of all the digital stuff, and you're like, I want to write on some paper. Very good. Okay, second purpose for Paul in verses 26 and 27 The mystery hidden for ages and generations, now revealed to his saints. This mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul was a Jewish scholar. He had studied a lot. And he was converted to Christianity through a supernatural experience with the risen Jesus along the side of the road. And... What Paul loves to do is to rethink Jewish ideas in light of Christ. You'll see it in all of his letters that are in the New Testament, and we see it here. So to understand what he means by the mystery hidden for ages, we have to kind of dig into what would Jewish people be thinking about this word mystery? What did it mean to them? Maybe when we hear it, we think about like a mystery novel or something, but that's not, that's not what was going on here. There's a whole other thing going on. So they saw what we call the Old Testament of the Bible as building up toward a great dawning of a new age when the Messiah would come and change everything. And some Jewish leaders would call this the secret plans of God. God has this secret plan at work throughout our history, and there's a building 
and awaiting. And when the Messiah comes, the plans will be revealed. That's the idea. N.T. Wright, I mentioned him in the first week. I'm leaning on his commentary quite a bit for this series. But he considers this the backdrop when Paul talks about the mystery of God revealed in Christ. He says it's God's secret plan, anticipated in visions and symbols of holy men of old, and now at last unveiled before all his people. God's secret plan is not a timetable of events, but a person, Jesus. Can you see how Paul's using specific language and religious symbols to glorify Jesus? He's sort of rethinking this idea that's in their culture, in the Jewish culture, that they'd be aware of. And he's spinning it toward, but look, it all means something different now that we have Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. He's saying all those secret plans of God are coming to life at this point in history. Something amazing has happened here. And it's a glorious hope for all who believe. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. Okay, next, Jesus holds it all together. That's the third purpose in that section that we read first. Um, We've talked about this from the very beginning of the series. Um, Just plan on hearing it more and more. Through all the letter, through all of creation, through everything Paul is saying, it's all about Jesus. This section is no different. Paul's sufferings are his sufferings. The church is his body. He is the mystery of God revealed. He is in you, the hope of glory. It's him that Paul proclaims as minister of the gospel. Maturity is found in him. When Paul toils, he toils with his energy. It's his power that works in Paul. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the Colossians' good order and firmness of faith, in that last verse we read, are in him. That's a lot of he's and him's, isn't it? So Paul, again, is just centering everything on Jesus. He's preparing to address these false teachings. And Paul's strategy is to totally immerse the conversation in Jesus. See, the false teachings are going to elevate religious duty and ritual, but Paul wants to elevate Jesus Christ. So he just talks about him in every phrase, in every sentence throughout the entire letter. The entire Christian life is anchored on nothing else but Jesus Christ. That's the point we're learning through repetition. So Paul wraps wraps up this section that we read with rejoicing. He's saying in chapter 2, verse 5, Great job, Colossians, by having good order and firmness of faith. These two Little word pictures, good order and firmness of faith, are actually military metaphors. It's like Paul is a general inspecting his troops before they go off to war. He's riding up and down the Colossian battle lines, looking over the troops, and he likes what he sees. He gives a pre-battle motivational speech in the letter. He's focusing the troops on what is most important, and inspiring them for the fight. And so now as we move forward in the letter from this point, Paul will give the Colossian church instructions for the battles that lay ahead. Specific instructions. He'll instruct them on how to defend against the false teachings. That they must put off the old version of themselves and learn to put on the new creation way of living. Excited to get to all of that. Um, But his first set of instructions here is in verses 
6 and 7 of chapter 2. Let's take a look. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Do you remember from week one when we talked about this phrase that's now in bold, Christ Jesus the Lord? And we said it's a very precise statement of who Jesus is. And I confessed my tendency to sometimes slip right by the title and like, okay, well, what's the point of the sentence? I go right by it. But it means something. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, Messiah, God's plan to bring about reconciliation, secret plan revealed. He's the Lord. He's the first and foremost before all creation, the firstborn of a resurrected new creation, God in the flesh. The title means something. And Paul then goes on to lay out a trio of word pictures, three ways to respond to Jesus as Lord and Christ. He says, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. So we're going to look at each of these three this morning. First is walk in him. We're encouraged to make a journey in Jesus. And um, I just can't help myself, guys. <laughs> um, be prepared for the cheesiness of this. But it's just where my head is at, okay? Right now, um, Micah and Aaliyah, my kids, are preparing for a school musical that will happen in the spring, right? So them and their friends at school have um, started to prepare for The Wizard of Oz. Classic musical. And uh, in that musical, Dorothy's given some instructions, isn't she? Tell me if you know what they are. Follow the yellow brick road. 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 Follow the follow, follow. You get it. (laughs) If she stays on the right path, she's going to get where she needs to go, right? And so it's kind of like Paul is saying, at least to me today, where I'm at in the world, Follow the Jesus brick road. That's the word picture as it strikes me as I read Colossians in 2022. Yeah, right? Follow the Jesus brick road. We'll, we'll copyright that one. But Paul's activating something, right? We're on a journey. There's a walk here. We're going somewhere. There's a way to go and there's a way to not go, right? This falls right in line what Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 14. Thomas says to Jesus, how can we know the way? And Jesus answers him. It's a very famous verse. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul's activating something that Jesus said, and it's there throughout the Old Testament as God relates to his people as well. Kathy said earlier today, the first half of this verse, Your word is a, there it is, bingo, Laura won the prize. (laughs) I was waiting for it. (laughs) Did you use uh, the treasures one twice? Because you can't use it twice. We got to check her bingo. No, she didn't. It's good. It's it's been certified. That's the bingo. (laughs) Where were we at? Oh, Paul, Jesus, Old Testament. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Or Isaiah 30, 21. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. So life is like a journey. And the encouragement is walk in Jesus. He is the way. Isn't that so good? 
But Paul's not done. There's two more word pictures here. So let's go to the next one. Be rooted in him. We're encouraged to put down roots into Jesus. And there's security and stability in being rooted in Jesus. When the storm comes and the winds blow, those who are rooted in Jesus will stand firm. Did you know that if trees are planted in a place where they're totally protected from the wind, they'll grow to a certain point and fall over under their own weight? There's something that happens in a tree when it's stressed by wind and storms. It actually changes and gets stronger. And as a result, it has the strength to get bigger without falling over and bear more fruit. Amen. <laughs> and it brings to light, at least in my mind, what James writes in James 1, um, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Something so valuable is produced in us during times of trouble, but only if we're rooted in Jesus. Isn't that true? Something so valuable is produced in us in times of trouble if we're rooted in Jesus. We gain a greater capacity to grow and to bear the good fruit that Jesus wants us to produce if we're rooted in him as we go through the storms of life. But there's another aspect of being rooted, right? There's another thing that trees do other than just hold on for dear life. They actually bring up nourishment through their root system and their trunk and out to produce their leaves. So the picture here is that Jesus is our source of life. A strong root system sustains through times of drought. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. Do I have a slide for that? I don't have a slide for that one. I'm just going to read it to you. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they, did, they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. So the idea here is that if we're not rooted in Jesus, because of being disconnected from the source of life, we'll, we will wither. We won't be able to withstand the drought. We won't be able to bear fruit and provide life and healing to others either. So that's a pretty good word picture. We're two for two. These are good. What's the third one? Well, my engineer heart gets happy because it's being built in him. Paul compares us to a building. In 1 Corinthians 3.10, another of Paul's letters, he says that Jesus is the foundation of the building. So sort of like the roots, it speaks to the security and stability of being built on Jesus. A life built on the foundation of Jesus is strong. Then Paul writes another letter to the church in a city called Ephesus, which is actually not too far from Colossae. And he says, Jesus is the cornerstone. The cool thing about a, a cornerstone for the rest of the engineers in the room, those of you joining in our engineering nerdiness, so <laughs> someone laughed. Yep, thank you. Bingo, laughing counts. It's the free space in the middle. I don't know. I made up the game, right? I can say what's the free space in the middle. <laughs> I like to laugh. Um, where were we? Cornerstone. So what they do when they build a building 
back when Paul's writing, is they take careful measurements. This is probably after the foundation part, right? You got the foundation ready. You take careful measurements about which way you want the building to face, how things are going to line up, and you set the cornerstone first. Okay? So Jesus, the firstborn of the resurrected new creation, he goes first to be resurrected, first to be the new creation, and then invites us into it. And so he orients everything. He orients the full construction of this new creation building. After all these secret plans developed for hundreds of years, and it finally comes, the mystery of God is revealed, God sets in place Jesus as the cornerstone. So he's both a support and a point of alignment for us, isn't he, in this word picture? It applies to both the individual and our church community as a whole. As each of us aligns our life to Jesus, right, something happens. We all come together in alignment with him and become a living spiritual house. From 1 Peter 2, chapter 5, you'll see that. He's building a temple a sanctuary, a place for him to dwell. It's right here as we line up with Jesus and become his spiritual building. Okay, as fun as those three word pictures are, and as much as we could talk about them all day long, we're going to move on. Verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So I want to kind of work this section backwards. At the end of this little three-verse section, Paul highlights how Jesus is holding it all together again, right? He's painted as the head, the ruler, the ultimate authority, God in the flesh. Doesn't this sound familiar from chapter 1? Jesus rules and reigns and fills us up completely with everything we need. And so, because of that, reject other philosophies. That's kind of the train of thought here. Reject human traditions. Reject things that would try to add on to the gospel. Other stipulations. In verse 8, Paul alludes to a couple of key things with his word choices, okay? He's starting to make some allusions to what the false teachings are, and then we'll develop it it further. But his first word choice that's really interesting, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but that part where he says, takes you captive or take captive, is a Greek word. It's only used once in the entire New Testament. So he might have chosen it on purpose. And it sounds really similar to the word synagogue. So he's talking about something that takes you captive that sounds like synagogue. Ding, 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 ding. Maybe something that the synagogue stands for is what he's worried about, taking them captive. It's like Paul is saying, make sure no one locks you up in Old Testament Judaism with its human traditions. Jesus Christ is enough. Don't let them add that on to what Jesus has done. It's an illusion. We'll get into it deeper in a minute. 
The second word choice is when it says elemental spirits, it's referring to like local or national gods. So it was really common in this day and age for maybe a city or a nation to have their gods. Um, there's a bunch of examples of them. I'm not going to get into that. But um, when I read that, I think Paul's talking about a second thing. And in the, the verses to come, my brain's trying to bounce between two things. Old Testament Judaism is a problem. And then this like pagan, nationalistic, local gods, religions. He's talking about two things. Well, N.T. Wright really blew my mind when he said, no, it's actually one and the same. Here's why. It's not like he's saying, watch out for the, the people who want you to obey all the laws of the Old Testament and watch out for pagan religions. He's actually comparing one to the other. It's like he's saying, watch out for Old Testament Judaism. It's just like another one of these national pagan religions. It's full of human tradition, but lacking the authority and power of the risen Jesus. So don't let that creep back in. Yeah, that blew my mind. That's a good one. Amen. And bingo. Okay, so let's move on as he develops it. Um, verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there you have it. Paul's coming right out and saying it now. He's talking about circumcision, right? And actually what he's talking about in some of his other letters, he calls these, this group of people that teach this the circumcision party. That's his shorthand term for them. Um, so you'll find this uh, confrontation happening as you read other parts of the New Testament. Paul confronts their teaching in other letters. And the early church calls a council in Jerusalem to try to settle the matter. You can find that in Acts chapter 15. So the circumcision party says that to be counted in the family of God, to become a part of God's chosen people, you must be circumcised. Following Paul, I picture them following Paul around Asia Minor, you know, like as he leaves, they sneak into the city and they're like, all right, guys. Yeah, that's all great, but you got to be circumcised too. And then they follow him to the next city or something. <laughs> that's just the way my brain works. I'm sure it wasn't like that. But <clears throat> that is what they are teaching. And this was how it worked through the age of the Old Testament. right? That was a part of God's people's life, was circumcision and the law of Moses. Um, and so these people want Gentile believers, people who are not Jewish, to be circumcised if they're going to be Christians and be counted in God's family. Acts 15.5, they come right out and say it. But what does Paul say? He says, Jesus Christ is enough. He says, don't be taken captive by the old way of thinking. It has been superseded. Jesus is the firstborn of a resurrected new creation. There's a new way in this new era. And uh, just to let you know, the council agrees with Paul. <laughs> Didn't want to forget to say that part. So Paul says Christians have already been circumcised in and through Jesus. They don't need the old physical rite of passage, of circumcision. Their rite of passage into the family of God is baptism. Their profession of faith in Christ. 
and the power of God at work in raising Jesus from the dead, which they profess and then get the dip, right? So that's the rite of passage to be part of the family of God. Through baptism, believers follow Jesus to their death. They die to their old way of life. That's what going under the water represents. They die to their old allegiances, to their self. And then by their faith in the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead, they are raised up out of the waters of baptism to a new creation life. It's a beautiful picture and full of so much symbolism and points to Jesus. It's, it's awesome. 2 Corinthians 5.17, another one of Paul's letters, one of my favorite verses. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's why I put that sentence in bold. There we go. Very good. Baptism. Buried and resurrected. All right. Verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's a good passage right there, tell you what. So Paul says there are two things that oppose us, stand in our way, and prevent us from being made alive. Right? He's talking to Christians. He's saying you've been made alive in Christ. When you professed faith and were baptized, you've been made alive. But there's two things that were in your way the record of debt, and the rulers and authorities. So we're going to look at those two key phrases for a little bit. The record of debt represents the laws of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, again. Okay? The law finds us all guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the law points that out again and again and again. Just look at how many sacrifices they have to offer as you read through Leviticus and other parts of the Old Testament. So what Paul is saying is the very thing the circumcision party would try to impose on you as believers was what Jesus went to the cross to eliminate. Sacrifice once and for all to deal with sin has come. Why would we go back to the old way? A couple of verses from other letters of Paul that point this out. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians three thirteen and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So Jesus erases the curse of sin. And he releases a blessing for us and for anyone who puts their faith in him. He makes us righteous by canceling the record of debt. Okay, the second thing Paul points to is the rulers and authorities, okay? And um, the easiest part to understand about this, this one feels like a bit of a mystery sometimes too, is... um, what he does to the rulers and authorities. So we're going to start there. What he does to them, and then we'll talk about who are they, because that's the hard part. 
Okay? So this verse is kind of describing what kings would do after conquering in war. There was a practice of coming back to your home city and having a victory parade where you (laughs) march your prisoners in shackles through the streets of your home city and you put on display the treasures that you took from the conquered city and everyone cheers. Yay, we won. Look at our prisoners and our gold and silver we took. So Paul is saying, whoever these rulers and authorities are, God is proclaiming a military triumph over them. He's conquered the enemy and parading through the streets with Jesus, taking a victory lap, putting on full display all that has been accomplished in winning the war. was won at the cross through Christ. He's putting his defeated enemies to shame. So who was the war against? Who did God defeat? This is the harder part. And I'm going to go with N.T. Red on this one. He's a pretty smart dude. He says that it's Roman rulers and Jewish religious authorities that Paul is most likely referring to with those two key words. And they've been defeated through the cross of Christ. So think about this for just a second. Who put Jesus on a cross? You can say. The Romans? Who convinced the Romans to put him there? Yeah, the Jewish religious leaders. So they partnered up in crucifying Jesus, didn't they? So what N.T. Wright says is they conspired to put Jesus on the cross. These two groups stripped him, Jesus, naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him. They marched him out to the place where they hung him on the cross, right? Kind of sounds like that military victory parade in a sense. They did that to Jesus. But here, Paul flips it on its head and says, actually, it was God's triumphant march as Jesus went to the cross. He was stripping them naked. He was putting them up to public contempt and leading them in his triumphal march. Because Jesus was crucified, he rose again, and that's the evidence of who won on that day. When the rulers and authorities had done their worst, crucifying the Lord of glory, they exposed themselves for who they really were, usurpers of his authority, pretenders. The cross became the source of hope for all who had been held captive under their rule. Christ breaks the last hold that the rulers and authorities had over his people by dying on their behalf. Wow. There's no one higher than Jesus. No one else has conquered death. Some say, Father, time's undefeated. (laughs) It's a sports thing, right? Because athletes get old and then they can't play anymore. Father, time's undefeated in athletics. Well, it's true here too. Death comes for us all, but Jesus is the one who conquered it. Caesar didn't. The high priest didn't. No one involved in crucifying Jesus did. They all died, but he rose from the dead. He is victorious. And we have the opportunity to join him in that victory. But we're going to close, but I want you to think about your life. Maybe you're not feeling super victorious right now. Maybe you're feeling a little imprisoned by a record of debt against you personally. 
a little pinned down by sin and death and its effects in your life today. Jesus has the power to set you free. He nailed that record of debt to the cross for you. Or maybe there's some rulers and authorities that you're feeling held captive by. Maybe you're feeling a little conquered or defeated in your life without hope. Jesus has the power to make you victorious. He defeated every foe at the cross. So if you put your faith in him, you're enlisting in his army. (laughs) And you will win. Life is still a battle, for sure. There's no promise of uh, not having battles in your life. But every battle you face, if you're in Jesus, is the outworking of a war that is already won. Whoa. (laughs) That's a perspective changer. That's a game changer, isn't it? The record of debt is canceled. The war is won. All that's left to do is to receive it as your own. Kathy, would you come? Yeah, um, I didn't read Bill's notes, and I wrote down that Jesus is what it's all about. And it's enough. Do you believe it's enough what Jesus did on the cross? It's enough to change your life. It's enough to give you hope. It's enough to make you a new creation. But do you believe that? Are you a new creation? He says you are. Are you living like that? Do others around you see you that way? Not that we care what people think, but we want, I want Jesus to work in my life and it to show. And I think that's what Paul was trying to say. We want that working in our life to show. We don't have to chase after rulers or be in debt to our past sins because that shows that we don't really believe that Jesus died and it was enough. And it was enough. Yeah. So I just want to close in prayer. If you are in the room or online and you don't have Jesus as your Savior, it is a very easy thing to do. All God asks you to do is believe the truth that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again so that you could be reunited with God. He forgives all you've done. And it doesn't matter what it was that you did. You are forgiven and he wants you to be set free. And if you believe that and you confess that and you say, yes, I believe Jesus died for my sins, And you are a Christian. And if you're a Christian in the room today and you struggle, you need an infusion of hope and truth. And Paul's words are for you. You have been forgiven. 
walk in new life. And so, Father, I just ask right now that you would just reveal that truth to each one's heart today. That we would walk in your truth. That we are forgiven and set free. And that truth would permeate our lives. That it would be revealed in our relationships with one another. It would be revealed in our workplace. It would be revealed in our families. We would demonstrate your love for us by loving one another and walking in the freedom that you so generously paid for with your life. Thank you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. We do have a prayer team today that would be would love to pray for you. And so if something in the message really struck you and you would like more prayer for that, I would encourage you to come up and get prayer. Or if you have a healing need, if you would like um, healing in any part of your body or your finances or relationships, they're really, um, prayer is where it's at, right? It's a way we connect with the Lord and it's so very good. Um, so with that... I would like to ask you to stand as we dismiss. I want to let you know that Pastor Cameron will be back from his sabbatical next Sunday. So we'll be able to say hello to him and see a refreshed uh, pastor. And with that, I would like to encourage you to go do and be Christ in your community. Amen.